Dear fellow redeemed, we especially consider our gospel reading from the gospel of Luke chapter 16, the story of the rich man and poor Lazarus. I call it a story because it doesn't sound quite like a parable. There's no particular setting that we hear where Jesus tells them a parable. Luke doesn't call it a parable, and there's no specific application like a parable usually has. On the other hand, we also do not have a clear word from Jesus that he's recounting for us an actual conversation that he, the Son of God, is definitely aware of. So we'll just kind of leave it in the middle. We'll call it a story. And the story here of the rich man and poor Lazarus, um, it's very easy to get the wrong conclusion. Here is this rich man, and every day he has everything that he needs and more to the point where he doesn't have to worry about anything except who is coming over next and where and when the next party comes. It would be very easy to draw a wrong conclusion, and you could even find some basis in the words of Abraham. Verse 25. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in misery. It would be very easy to look at that and to hear what Abraham is saying and to say, Oh, simple. I get it. We're talking about, um, we're talking about you're going to eventually get what's coming to you one way or another. That concept that Americans have adopted even into our way of speaking as if it were karma. I think that's probably the, the term that we should talk about the most, that idea of karma. And as an American, you probably just have that idea, karma just means you're going to get what's coming to you. Karma means that if somebody just sped by me on the highway, they're going to get pulled over by the police officer who's sitting just over the hill. Karma means that if somebody cheated me in a particular agreement or contract, even if Even if I'm the one who has to bear the loss today, then maybe tomorrow or at some point in the future, the scales of justice will balance it all out, and this person will get what is coming to them. Or I will get some benefit from the sacrifice that I made. That idea of karma, as we talk about it, um, actually comes from the Hindu religion. And the Hindu religion, if you remember that, the, the main thing about Hinduism is that you have to, um, that where you are at in life and what you experience in life is a direct result of the way you had acted in your previous life. So that if you are a, a wealthy person and you don't have a care in the world like the rich man in today's story, then the reason that he is that wealthy person is because in his previous life, He had done good things. And poor Lazarus, poor Lazarus sitting there at at the front gate of this rich man, well, the fact that he is um, in the position he is in, health concerns and all, is proof that in his previous life he had been a liar and a cheat and he had done some very bad things. With the result that if that idea of karma were true, then the rich man has no concern for anybody aside from himself because whatever he has, he has earned it. And Lazarus has likewise no position and no way to better his station 
because where he is at, he deserves that too. That idea of karma is about as anti-Christian as you can get. It falls right in line with human reason that says, I'm going to get what I deserve, and you're going to get what you deserve, and my only concern is what I have for myself. And looking at this story from Jesus here in Luke chapter 16, one might even draw that conclusion. Abraham says, well, you received your good things in life, and now you're being punished. And my, how the tables have turned. Lazarus did not, and now he is being comforted. But there's more going on. Because what we have here is also reflected in the other two readings. That it's not just a question of who deserves what, but it's also a question of how do we, how do we judge what is good? How do we judge what is good? How do we judge if a person's circumstances are good or not? How can we say whether today and the, the peace and prosperity of today, as Amos talked about, is good in a way that it will be here tomorrow? In Amos's day, the land of Israel was very affluent, and there wasn't a concern. They had a, a stretch of peace. There wasn't much to worry about. And there was so much affluence that the, the sort of furniture that would, would have been reserved for the king was found in the commoner's house and household. And the sort of leisure time that had been previously unknown was something that was common in their, in their own homes and within the bounds of their nation, where somebody could take two or maybe three or even four days off during the week. It looked like the golden age, or at least the silver age, of the land of Israel. But the warning that Amos had brought to those people was right there at the end of verse 6. They do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. That how do we judge whether something is good or not? From an external perspective, the economy was great. From an outsider's perspective, the rich man had made all the right choices and done all the, all the proper investment ideas. But spiritually, that was a different matter. Spiritually, that was a different matter. Spiritually, the people of Israel were empty. That the, the faith that Joseph had held on to wasn't there. And spiritually, this rich man who, even if he had left his house, his household, his compound um, during the week, he would have had to walk around or step over the poor beggar laid right outside his gate. Because God doesn't operate on karma. God operates in a way that is in line with his word. And we act in faith together with that word. That the rich man and poor Lazarus isn't a story of getting what's coming to you, but rather receiving what God has blessed you with. That rich man, in all of his, uh, in all of his affluence, had forgotten his Lord. And Lazarus, conversely. Even though the rest of the nation may have walked by and said, What did this man do? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he had ended up like this? From a human perspective, it looked like Lazarus had the worst of cases. It looked like he was as bad off as Job, even if he hadn't lost as many things. He was still lying there on the dust heap with 
disease, and nobody to attend to him except the dogs who have to wander by. But Lazarus still had his God, the very God that, that the rich man had forgotten. That it is very easy to judge according to what we see and to forget what our Lord has promised. That it is very easy to think like that rich man, oh, if only, if only you would send Lazarus back. If you, if you can't help me out, then warn, warn my brothers because I have five of them. And Abraham's answer is the actual point of the story. And it's the, the point that Jesus ends with. If they do not listen to Abraham, to Moses and the prophets, then they will not listen even if somebody rises from the dead. And it closes like, I don't know, the clang of a door. Closes like the gavel of a judge. That Jesus is the very one who would rise from the dead. And this rich man or his brothers would be the ones who reject Jesus. So what does it mean for us? If we aren't talking about, if we aren't talking about God balancing the divine scales of justice, and if we aren't talking about this idea of karma, or at the very least you'll get what's coming to you better or worse, what is the application for you and for me? I think the most important point is exactly where Jesus leaves us. That they have Moses and the prophets. That in a world and in a culture that wants to, that wants to count and wants to compare, in a world that wants to get caught up in comparisons and say, this is what I have and this is what I do not, this is what I have accomplished and this is what you haven't, Jesus says that you can stop your worry. Because when you have your Jesus, you've got everything. When you have your Jesus, you've got everything. And that's easy enough to say when, you are, um, when you're meeting the bills and the mortgage is paid at least this month and the health is fairly stable. But it's another thing entirely. It's another thing entirely when you might be Lazarus, or maybe not to that degree, but but you have some element of suffering in your own life. When the health isn't there, and when the worries have started to show up, it's very easy to get caught up in what we see and what we can measure. It's very easy to say, well, here is what I have to do, and here is how things ought to be balanced out today. But our Lord's promise to Lazarus is his same promise for you and for me that this Lazarus who looked like he had nothing, this Lazarus who looked so disregarded as though even the rich man, the richest man in the city perhaps, had to walk over him and would not even give him a crust of bread, that this Lazarus had all the blessings of our Lord because of the faith that God had given to him. And that's kind of where the, the second reading had went, had gone as well, in, uh, from Hebrews. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And sometimes we need to hear that again. God has said, 
never will I leave you, and never will I forsake you. With the result that we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, and I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? This is the, the, the truth, and this is the, the beautiful reality that the Christian church has. This is the truth and the beautiful reality that was given to you at your baptism and that Jesus reaffirms for you in his Holy Communion even today. This is the beautiful truth and the reality that your status before God doesn't depend on your accomplishments or your lack thereof. That your status before God is sure and certain because he has done the work. Because this Jesus who says that even you and I have Moses and the prophets and the entire New Testament as well. This Jesus is the one who raised himself from the dead and proved that all of those prophecies from the Old Testament were trustworthy and most of all proved that his commitment to you is complete. That this Jesus has said that no matter what tomorrow brings, whether it's just another Monday or if it is something a little bit different in your life, no matter what tomorrow or the next decade brings, you have a Jesus who is worth holding on to because he has already committed himself to you. Because he has already promised, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you, because he has already raised himself from the dead. To think of that, that this Jesus who wants to be, wants to be your highest joy today and this Jesus who wants to um, guide his church and his people with his word today is the same Jesus who has already done all the work to prove that his word is trustworthy, to prove that he is the one who carried the sin of both the rich man and Lazarus, and to those wherever you fall on that spectrum, somewhere in between, most likely, that this Jesus has promised to you that you are his. That this Jesus has promised to you that no matter how things look in this life, there's a reality that is greater than what we can see or what we can measure. That God has chosen to, to hide his glory so that he can reveal his glory. And that's one of the, the other major themes, um, kind of in contrast to that idea of karma, is the idea that God hides his glory so that he can reveal his glory. Karma says, I'm going to, I get what I deserve, whether good or bad. And yet, this idea that God hides his glory is the truth that God has promised to give us what we don't deserve, no matter how it looks. Karma says, if something bad happens to you, or if your circumstances aren't, aren't the most pleasant, then you must have earned that, and you deserve that in some way. And karma would also tell that person, well, don't worry because it'll all even out in the end. There's kind of a dual truth there that doesn't make sense. And yet, the greater truth that our God has to say is that he is the one who has chosen to hide his glory so that he can reveal his glory. He is the one who has chosen to hide his glory under weakness. He is the one who has chosen to hide his glory under suffering. He is the one who even chooses to permit, allow, or send pain, suffering, or difficulty upon his church and his Christians. So that his Christians remember not to treasure or want what the rich man has, nor to treasure or want what Lazarus doesn't have, but rather to treasure the word of God alone. The word of God which is true in every circumstance. 
the word of God which is sealed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and which is sealed to you in your baptism. And so we look at that and we see, okay, I get it, Pastor Hagen. We're not talking about karma. We're talking about how God hides his glory and about the reality that we can't judge by what we see. And that God's spiritual reality and God's gracious truth is greater than what we can see. So what does that mean for us? I guess the, the way, you know, the easiest way to talk about this um, and also to remind you is on the way out today, you'll get your calendar. And there's a lot of stuff on the back side. I mean, we've got um, the communion setup schedule. Um, a hymn of the month that we'll sing a couple of times this next month, The Mighty Fortress is Our God, because it's worth remembering and because it's worth learning and it's worth our children knowing. Because, and I, I, I should talk about that, that we choose a hymn of the month so that we can all get used to it and so that our children are prepared with the knowledge of this hymn, or they're able to sing along with us in church, as well as to sing, especially if life gets more difficult as they grow older. There's some Bible verses that kind of match up with what our catechism children are learning this month. Um, and then the project of the month. And this month I put um, small groups and committee setup and ministry planning. Small groups is the one that I have to talk about. There's the rich man. And there's Lazarus. And all Lazarus has is God. And all the rich man has is godless friends. And it's almost the silent question on top of everything that Jesus has said. That yes, Lazarus isn't missing out on anything. And he never would for all eternity. But at the same time, if we are Christians who do not believe in the pagan idea of karma... And we are Christians who do believe that God hides his glory and that God most reveals his glory in his word and that his word is the only thing that is trustworthy in life and death, that we have Moses and the prophets, let's listen to them. Then let's find a way to, to find a way to get together around God's word more often. And so if you, if you checked out the, the, the calendar last month, you saw that you know, our Tuesday Bible class with the ladies' psalms class had started. And then Wednesday, we've got catechism with our kids. And, um, and Thursday, we've got doctrine class. And Friday, we've got a, a different Bible class. This idea of small groups is that each of those classes is, in a sense, a small group of you know, between five and maybe as many as 10 or 15 people who get together regularly and look at God's word together and get to know one another and maybe even share some of the concerns um, in, in an atmosphere of trust. And I realize that you know, many of you may be coming from 15, 20, 25 minutes away and maybe 6 p.m. On a, on a Thursday night doesn't quite fit your schedule and 1 p.m. on a Friday afternoon doesn't quite fit your schedule either. And so the other, the other element of small groups is that we've got, I think, eight different sets of books. And my question isn't, I'm not going to ask you to come to church at a particular time. But could you get together with a couple of Christian friends, find a time that works for you, find a place that works for you, maybe, maybe your own home or maybe some other location like Panera, I, I don't care. <laughs> and could you set aside a little bit of time once a month 
to talk about one of these chapters in one of these books. That each book is a stack of, um, I think, six books. So that's up to, up to six households. Um, and to kind of read through the chapter, and then there's some discussion questions at the end, to spend a little bit of time with this other person, maybe, maybe to d- discuss a topic that we don't talk about here uh, very much, or to discuss something with a little bit more depth than just pastor talking about it on a Sunday morning, um, but in a way that could fit your schedule, in a way that says, yes, I do have Moses and the prophets. Yes, I do have this, this teaching that our Lord has given in his word. And yes, I'm going to hold our Lord to this promise that the two major blessings of gathering together as a congregation is that, number one, we all receive the Lord's Supper together. That's something you can't do over the internet. But then also, secondly, that you've got a family of believers You've got a family of believers here um, who maybe they have been through what Job has been through. Maybe they haven't. But you've got a family of believers here who care about you. And to find some way to, to put that care into practice, to at the very least sit and discuss the Word of God together or a doctrinal topic together, to find some way to encourage one another and just see where it goes. And maybe, maybe you do one chapter a month for you know, four months or six months, whatever it is, and you say, well, that's not quite working for me. That's fine. There's no long-term commitment here. This isn't, <laughs> this isn't a contract. It's a question. Can you read a book with a couple friends and talk about it? I'll have the books and the, um, the layout and the format of it next week. And uh, two of our members, Matt and Caitlin Inniger, are going to help with um, making sure that we can get a couple of groups going, hopefully. One more would be great. You know, three more would be over the moon. To all trace back to this one simple reality. The one simple reality that when Christians gather around the Word of God, when Christians discuss the Word of God and demonstrate their love, care, and compassion to one another, that is of greater value than anything else in this world. That when Christians gather around the Word of God to say, this is what I believe and this is why, and I want to exercise some Christian love in fellowship with you, that is of greater value than anything the rich man had to offer, uh, than anything that Lazarus was missing out on. Because that's exactly what Jesus says. We do have Moses and the prophets and the apostles and the evangelists. So let's find a way to listen to them together.